We really think European butter from France is the best butter. And our friend, the expert baker and best-selling cookbook author David Leibovitz agrees. Check out our recent episode with David to find out how he cooks with quality butter. And for recipes, tips, and cooking advice, go to tasteeurope.com. I think there's a pattern in my career, and that is that I'm, I'm fueled by fear, and I suffer from imposter syndrome. So when a few people did put my name in uh, for the BA role, I remember not being able to even respond to the emails to Carla Lolly Music, who would eventually be my boss. <laughs> I was just too scared. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm Editor-in-Chief Matt Rodbard, here with Senior Editor Anna Hiesel. Today on the show, Matt is catching up with Andy Baragani, who is no stranger to those who follow cooking on the internet. He was on staff at Bon Appetit for six years and is the author of the new book, The Cook You Want to Be. Matt, what did you and Andy talk about? Anna, Andy is an old pal, and I've followed his career from line cook at Estella in New York to serving as the food editor at Tasting Table to later working in the Bon Appetit Test Kitchen, where many were introduced to Andy's kind heart and incredibly sharp recipe writing. We talk about his new book, The Cook You Want to Be, and cover some of his golden rules in cooking, one being how water, of all things, can actually help fix many mistakes made in the kitchen. This is one of my favorite conversations in recent memory, and I hope you give it a listen and pick up his book, too. Here's Matt speaking with Andy. Andy Barigani, welcome to the Taste Podcast. Thank you, man. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to you're here. I love your book. I've I've spent a lot of time with it recently, and it's so special. So congratulations, man. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. That means a lot. That that really does mean the world coming from you. I appreciate I, that. I uh, I want to hear about your your path to writing the cookbook, and I I, I want to hear about your your history with food media. But I wanted to start first by going back to you grew up in the East Bay and you write about that really colorfully and, and with such voice in the book. But you uh, hosted uh, as a teenager, you were hired by your neighbors oh my God. to cook <laughs> dinner parties. That sounds like great training to be a restaurant chef. Oh, it was being. like it was it was such a blessing getting well, my friend who also loved food would help me out, but having parents, neighbors hire us and do these kind of dinner parties where I'm like, okay, well, it's going to be three courses and I would like design the menu. And then of course I was a terrible business person because <laughs> I would barely break even. Uh, but you're so right. It was this kind of unofficial training um, and, it, and it just allowed me to kind of experiment and it was so much fun. What were some of the memorable, like, take us back to that time. What were you cooking then? And and this was in Berkeley, right, East Bay. Yeah. What, what were what were some of the some of the courses? I'm I'm just really curious about that time and place. What were you cooking? You know, I think the dishes very much, but also I remember the way I would name the dishes. Oh, cool. It was like little gems with green goddess and shaved radishes. It's like such a particular time and space and region. Yeah. Um, uh, braised chicken legs with crushed olive sauce. It's like it things that I would never, not to say that, I mean, that's what I wanted to cook. And I think also I was looking at a lot of maybe cookbooks and the Boulevard cookbook I remember looking at a lot. That was very nice. important. Um, and obviously the Chez Panisse cookbooks. Uh, but yes, or like uh, 
what were some of the desserts? Almond cake or mm-hmm. <laughs> it was very it was very specific to the Bay Area. I felt that. Yeah. Food. Did you have any formal training whatsoever, or did you just learn through osmosis through going to the markets and cooking with your with your I, mom? I really just learned. By observing my mother, grandmother, uh, going to the markets with them, and then eventually going into the restaurant industry. I never went to culinary school, so I'm not <laughs> classically trained, I should say. <laughs> I, I mean, it's I'm not classically trained as a journalist. I mean, it's the best when you, when you can just make it to a, have a career without having that formal training. Um, but you did train with some great folks because as, uh, as you write in the book, a co- uh, The Cook You Want to Be, uh, you walked into Chez Panisse one day. You walked in there, <laughs> and you were looking for an internship. You just walked in there. I, Talk about that. I want to hear that story. I did. I don't know. I mean, I like to think that that teenage boy still very much exists in this 32-year-old body, but <laughs> I think I, I had nothing to lose. You know, I was quite young, and I had heard from family members that, you know, there's a very special restaurant, a very important restaurant started by this by this woman named named Alice Waters. And it started in the 70s, and it's it's looked at as one of the best restaurants in, in California. And I said, oh, well, I've never worked in restaurants, and I want to learn from one of the best restaurants. And I I don't know what got over me, but I, I went there. I don't even remember how I got there because it wasn't walkable from my home. But um, I went straight past the doors, and I took a wrong turn, and I went into the office space. Mm-hmm. And I was just looking around, and the phones were ringing, and people were picking up, and it was for reservations. And then a woman turned over and looked at me, came towards me, and she said, Hi, can I help you? And I said, Hi, I'd like to work here. She's like, What are you looking to do? And I said, I want to work in the kitchen. She's like, well, you're in the office space. The kitchen is across from there. <laughs> you're not in the right spot. There is no fire here. Yeah. And that kind of just like she just like jolted me to go into the kitchen. And I ended up um, talking to Beth Wells, who was the mm-hmm. co-chef uh, at the cafe upstairs. And I spoke to her for maybe 15, 20 minutes. And I told her I'm in high school and I want to learn how to cook and I want to work at the restaurant and I could come Fridays after school and Saturdays and I'll work for free. And I think she was so confused. She was like, I don't know how he's supposed to do this, but why not? And I did. And she let me come. So right now in 2022, this probably would be a little more common, like, you know, people, uh, high schoolers who are interested in food and grew up in food media uh, offering their services for free. But back then, you know, this was like 15 years ago. Yeah, uh, uh, 17 years ago. 17 years ago <laughs> doing quick math. This is pretty rare, right, to have somebody walk in and say, I will work for free at your age, at such a young age, right? Yeah, I think for me I was aware that for some – for a place of that caliber, I knew that um, I just wanted that education. And I wasn't – I wasn't sure or even thinking about culinary school. That wasn't on my radar. It's just like, oh, I want to be surrounded and work with people who are really talented and incredible and curious at their craft. Mm-hmm. And I still very much try to hold on to that. It's, you know, I want to work with people that I really have a lot of respect for. 
So what were the first tasks that you were giving at Chez Panisse? The very first task, I'll never forget because I did it for about six weeks, was to prep the onions, which means to trim the hairy root end, trim the knobby top, and then cut it in half and remove the outer papery layer. And to check again to make sure the kind of, if there's a layer that kind of won't break down, Mm -hmm. to peel that back as well and then dump it in the bucket. And I have to do two buckets worth. Two buckets. So there's no um, knife cuts beyond the having of it and the parent, the cleaning of it, right? No, the prep cooks would uh, would do that. I was you were <laughs> pre prep. <laughs> yes, I was pre prep. How deep do you go when peeling an onion? I feel like in some cultures, like in Israel, where I have family, they go they peel so much off of it. They almost pull like half of the onion off. But in France, I mean, it's kind of less. I feel it depends on the freshness of the onion. I think like the older the onion, you're more likely to want to peel back a few layers. Got it. Um, but there are some where, especially the onions I'll get at the market, uh, they're very difficult to peel. It's so difficult to peel the, even the, the papery outside. Um, so it just depends on the freshness. Um, I would like to hear a bit about your your history in food media because, like, as someone who's worked in it, I was um, really um, excited when you joined Tasting Table. <laughs> like, I, I, I knew who you were. I don't, I don't think I had met you, but I knew who you were when you took that job. But talk about the the kind of path to Tasting Table. Where were you working previously, and then how did you get into food media through that job? <laughs> I definitely, I think, was an outsider in that sense. Yeah, uh, very much much um, a restaurant cook. Worked in restaurants in California, and New York, and uh, the only kind of media experience I had uh, prior to Tasting Table was a internship at Severe Magazine. Um, I was a test kitchen intern um, shopping for going all around New York City shopping for all the ingredients uh, for these elaborate recipes. And then eventually I came back on to kind of help with um, a story that they did on Iran. But that was kind of really my only experience for editorial. And then I was working at um, Estella Mm -hmm. as a line cook and... One day, Todd Coleman, who's a friend and a former editor at Sever, came in. And he's like, what are you doing here? And I'm like, I, I work on the line here. And I'm like, what are you doing here? He's like, oh, I'm making a video with Ignacio Matos, the chef at Estella. And I'm like, oh, what are you, what are you doing? He's like, I work for this, this company called Tasting Table. He's like, let's grab coffee. Uh, let's get, mm-hmm. grab coffee next week. I, I remember it just being very rushed. And I was like, okay, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll text you. Following week, I meet up with him, and he's like, let's let's just meet at the office. And then he brought me to the office. I met a few people, and then I guess they had, like, an event space. And we went over there. He's like, you know, we're going we're gonna to walk over to the event space. And I'm like, what are we doing? Aren't we, aren't we supposed to get coffee? And he said, I put your name into the be, to be <gasps> the next food editor, and you're about to meet the editorial director, Adam Sachs. Uh. <laughs> and I just remember drowning in fear, scared, frustrated, a little angry. I was going to say a little angry? Yeah, yeah, like, and very very caught off guard. Because, you know, it it was, and when I, looking back, I feel so grateful for anybody to have that kind of faith in me. And I guess I I met with Adam, whom you know, and, Mm -hmm. uh, and we spoke about cooking and certain regional cuisines and thistles and all the stuff for about an hour, this long conversation. And then he basically said, like, do you want to work here? 
Sweet. <laughs> and, and I was like, I said, I, I think so. <laughs> Exciting times for you. It must have been. Did you have any sense of how a magazine worked? I mean, you had been at Savor, and I would assume it was under Osland at the time. James yes. Osland. Oh, yeah. So Osland era, very uh, important time in food media. James has been on the podcast and definitely – a cool place to work, I'm sure. But did you have any sense of what your job would be as the food editor of a of a publication? I really didn't. I re- I think it was just I think Todd because uh, he knew me from years prior at Sever. He just knew that I was going to make things work. Like I think back at Sever, I was just I was able to find whatever ingredient I was going to make it work. If recipes needed to be translated, I was going to make it work. And so I think. He knew I had a can-do a- attitude, and there was a lot of changes at Tasting Table, and um, I was uh, excited and eager. And I'm I'm really happy and proud of the work that we were able to do the short time I was there. Really cool publication. I think it um, you know got swept up in a lot of digital media change, and and really digital media is a tough tough place to hack it out. Um, but yeah, cool publication under Adam Sachs and other editors. Uh, but then that really started your career because you were you were. Noticed by Bon Appetit. <laughs> you were noticed by this place that was a real legendary place at the time and still is. And you um, were recruited essentially away from Tasting Table. So let's hear a little bit about that. And you were we're at BA for six years, which yeah, I mean no that's one – a long time. I feel like – I didn't know that. I was like, oh, you were there for a couple of years. Like six years is a really long time. Yeah, I think I'm still surprised because it's so – not of my nature to want to stay anywhere for very long. And uh, I, I did not think I would ever stay at BA for that long either. But um, I think there's a pattern in my career, and that is that I'm I'm fueled by fear and I uh, suffer from um, imposter syndrome. So when mm-hmm. a few people did put my name in uh, for the BA role, I uh, just was like, I, I remember not being able to even respond to the emails to Carla Lolly Music, who would eventually be my boss. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was just too scared. But eventually, I had an interview with her, and um, it went really well. And I was just so, she was so nurturing and kind. Yeah. And then I had to do a tasting. Oh, wow. Like, like it was a real restaurant gig. It was, I mean, this is like, oh, I will, the- I am saying this. Right here, I don't think anybody had to do that like hardcore <laughs> like I did. I mean, I I did a, a three course tasting. Wow, like, it was intense for Carla and four other editors, and it was just like course by course. What were they? Give me one. You must remember. Yes, I, of course, of course, of course. Of course. Um, I remember two out of the three. Uh, one of them was a like this brothy grain and bean soup uh, that had um, a bit of kombu and bonito, and then mm. it had really crispy uh, maitake mushrooms with a raw yolk um, and like the sizzle chili on top. That was one dish. And then the other dish was uh, braised chicken legs. Um, no, they weren't braised. They were roasted chicken legs with um, like citrus rounds and then a hot green tahini sauce. So cool. It makes sense. I mean, BA, and especially when you were there, was really the wheelhouse was extremely, um, I would say, modern and and restaurant-driven recipe development, but done in a really accessible way. Definitely. And, like, doing, like, a, a green tahini, obviously, in, like, tw- six, seven years ago. Like, <laughs> ahead of the curve on the tahini train, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Nice job. You obviously got the gig. Well done. Thank you. Six years. You ended up in front of the camera, but when you started, were you doing video? 
No, and you know, I think I, I, that was one of the questions I remember when I was being interviewed. I was like, how much do you have to be on camera? Because I, I wasn't really interested in doing that, to be honest. Yeah. Um, I feel differently now, and I'm more comfortable with it. But I think at the beginning, I was I wanted to be able to develop recipes. I wanted to be able to travel and tell those stories um, and, and write. I didn't even think about uh, being on video. And also, truthfully, they didn't really have a lot of videos at that time. Yeah, they they made that shift while you were there, and yes. you became one of the the BA personalities, um, and became quite popular from through that. But clearly, you weren't motivated by video. You're not no. a thirst trap kind of guy. <laughs> um, but I want to hear. Let's go to talk about the cook you want to be, because honestly, I'd like to hear about why this book right now. Because I feel like you could have gone in many directions when writing this proposal and selling this book and it being your. Oh, debut I'd love cookie. to hear those ideas. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I'm just you, you. Seem like you're so creative, and you're either. <laughs> All right, let me step back a second. Like, <laughs> let me hear from you. What, why this book now? I wanted, I knew that my first book would may probably be my most personal book I ever work on. Um, and who knows, maybe I'll end up, maybe I'll, who knows, I shouldn't say that. But mm-hmm. this book is quite personal. Uh, but I also wanted it to be very foundational. I wanted it to be foundational to, you know, the cooking, my cooking, the food that inspired me, the the regional cuisines that inspired me. Um, and I wanted to be driven by not just uh, plenty of recipes, but I wanted to be driven by the idea of not, again, not just cooking a recipe and having to be delicious and a workout, but really going a step deeper. And hopefully... With each recipe, you're learning a technique or learning a little bit more about the ingredient. And I want people to kind of take these things and apply mm-hmm. it to their own kitchen and, you know, discover the cook they want to be. Discover the flaky salt they want to use because <laughs> yes. you yeah. really make a great – I love the way that you have your rules. And I thought your use of flaky salt. And you also – you make a rule that water can be your friend and can fix things in the kitchen. Absolutely. Such I, a, talk about flaky salt and water being a fixer. I love those two things. Well, flaky salt to me – you know, everybody is like, oh, flaky salt. It's not so much that it's fancy. It's more that it adds this irregular good disrupt- disruption to your dish. It's this uh, salty crunch – and I, and I crave that. It also kind of fools the palate and keeps you guessing um, and also like highlights certain flavors. And uh, because it's not even and it has a regular shape, um, it kind of creates a, a unique experience. It looks, so Malden is one that you would say you would use. Love Malden. I love Jacobson's. That's Jacobson's my favorite. It's good too, yeah. Um, and for water, I have to say I use water majority of the time over stock. Um, and it's – really to allow ingredients to shine. So much of the time, whether it's a, let's say, a nakcham or a braise, adding stock just adds weight to it, unnecessary weight. And I kind of want the kind of freshness and that clean just water to kind of allow all the other ingredients to come through. And breathe. Well, it's it's articulated really well throughout the book and the recipes, and 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 check out how the use of water and it feels there are so many tips um, like using waters overstock in the book. I have to back up and ask about Lorena Jones, who mm. edits many of the books we talk about on Taste, um, and you know she's an editor, editorial director um, at Ten Speed Press, and has her own um, imprint, Lorena Jones book. So talk about your relationship with her. I, she's my old boss, and I adore Lorena, but I wanted to. How did you connect with her for the projects? I know it was very personal, and working with Lorena, what was that like? She's the reason why I I went with with Ten Speed. It was a hundred percent. I remember taking the calls, and we were I was working with my agent Kitty, and 
my proposal, my book proposal was out, and I heard from Lorena from the call, and I just knew she got it. Mm. She understood not just the book, but she understood who who I am, and um, I went with my gut, and I felt so safe and have continued to feel so safe and encouraged in these last, I don't even know, two and a half, three years. Um, she has been such a exceptional editor, but also just such a gracious human being, and... <laughs> yeah, she, yeah. She she she's been very good to me. <laughs> yeah, oh, Andy. I mean, I I I'm so happy you share that because we don't talk about the the editors too many too much on the podcast. But um, there are some special editors here, and Lorena is yeah. one of them. And and I know she's really advocated for for the, for this book, and and has loved this working with you on this book. Just hearing little bits here and there over the years. <laughs> um, but I want to go and talk about some of the other concepts in the book because yes. I know your background, your family moved to the States from Iran and, and you have some of these dishes in there and it's not, certainly not an Iranian or Persian cookbook. But let's talk about kuku sabzi because it feels like that's one of the dishes, tadig as well, that you really do focus on and have a real explanation about why these are the great foods of Iran. Right? Absolutely, you know, there's there's definitely a good handful of Iranian recipes. I, I I certainly didn't want to do an Iranian cookbook. I think you know hopefully one day in the future, yeah. lots more research. You know that that'll happen hopefully. I think kuku sabzi means a lot personally because it was kind of the first Persian recipe that I developed that really um, got some traction that people really started to make. And became curious about, and you know, I I still don't think people are fully aware of Iranian cuisine and uh, those flavors. But kuku sabzi is a very forgiving dish because all you really need is a handful of eggs, very few eggs actually, and herbs. The typical kind of trifecta is dill, parsley, and cilantro. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it really could be used. You could use a wide variety of herbs. Uh, and fenugreek leaves. Mm-hmm. Occasionally, you'll see turmeric, black pepper, sometimes the Persian spice advia. And typically, you kind of create this batter that's this intensely wonderful um, green color. And then you pour it in a hot, hot pan, and you cook it on both sides until the herbs have browned and cooked. Um, but I do a very different technique, and I hear it from so many people, including my family, uh, that it's not correct. But it's kind of become my signature, and that is where I cook it on one side and finish Mm. in the oven. So it really does still stay that bright green, and it almost becomes like light and souffle-like. I love that. I can't wait to make that dish, and and I feel like there's a lot of ways to do uh, sabzi, right? Absolutely. It's a very – it can be transposed over many different – in many different kitchens, but I love your version. So you also, interestingly, um, advocate for vinegar toasts, like adding vinegar to bread, toasted bread, as um, a play on texture and also, of course, acidity. So I wanted to hear about that because that really struck me as like this is, feels extremely chefy, mm-hmm. but you're doing it in a way that is accessible. The way that you've written the recipes, what's up with vinegar toast? <laughs> it is. It's actually my favorite. I love all three of the toasts in the book, but th- that one is by far my favorite. The this toast, which you'll see when you when you buy this book. Yeah, totally. <laughs> it, it's uh, you're frying the bread basically, so it's a, a very generous amount of olive oil, and then you're basically taking a slice of bread that's about one inch thick, definitely on the thick side, and de- frying it, a shallow fry, until it's deeply golden brown, and then um, 
the vinegar, what makes it the vinegar toast is this mixture of obviously red wine vinegar or sherry vinegar or white wine vinegar, any kind of vinegar you have. Um, some herbs, I like using parsley, chives or dill, whatever you have, and mm. lots of black pepper and salt. And then you kind of drown this fried crispy toast in this salty, peppery, tangy liquid. And I love eating it on its own, but it's also kind of mm-hmm. perfect for anything that's quite rich, any kind of rich stewy soup dish or braise. It sounds like it's a great compliment yes. to a soup. You write a great story about uh, you, you, you turn your, your boyfriend turns to you and he makes the statement that um, he doesn't need potatoes in his life. And like my wife Tamar has said that to me in the past and I'm like, yo, so I'm like, nah, let's make some potatoes because potatoes are great. Like, but like, I love your recipe. Let's talk about your potato recipe. How did it like change your boyfriend's opinion about potatoes? Oh, I completely rolled my eyes when he said that. I was so annoyed. Um, he is a good eater. He has certain moments. Potatoes and I'd say cilantro, but he has the allergy, so I can't get too upset. Yeah. Soapy um, soap. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Um, but there's two potato recipes. One of them is this shatteringly crisp roasted potato that gets served with this crunchy romesco and it has plenty of texture and it's smoky and spicy. And I love that one, but actually I think my favorite is the other one. That oh. doesn't have a photo. Oh, it's cool. the what only that? recipe that doesn't have a photo. Yeah, yeah, right. You like I was like, what? They're, all your recipes have photos, which of course is a huge lift. Yes. <laughs> but you remember the one that doesn't have a photo, yes. of course. <laughs> it's actually, it's just boiled potatoes um, in, you know, deeply, very salty water until they're perfectly creamy. And then you just kind of smush them with your fingers and toss them with uh, plenty of uh, preserved lemon, chopped up preserved yeah. lemon, preserve the brine from the preserved lemon, and then pepper, dill, and then a generous amount of butter. So it's like these buttery lemon potato salad kind of I love we have a great preserved lemons piece and taste and I'll link to it in the show notes because I feel like preserved lemon should always be around in your kitchen yes great application um I love the way that you cook with cabbage I feel like this cabbage recipe is going to be the first thing I cook from the book mm-hmm. and it's it's a it's, it's a seared cabbage um with this anchovy sauce um and literally one cup of dill oh yeah i have no i have no shame <laughs> one cup of dill which it shouldn't work but it clearly does talk oh, about this dish I, I love it i am always if there's one thing is that i'm consistent with my overuse of of herbs <laughs> uh yeah. cabbage is, is my favorite vegetable i mean yeah. i could do a whole chapter on potatoes and cabbage i love that but um this one it's about just getting that nice sear and then i want to cook it until it's basically uh, it gives up and you don't even need a knife. It just it softens in the oven and once it's become very, very almost um, – there's no crunch to it, uh, I kind of bring it back to life with this mixture of chopped dill, plenty of lemon zest, lemon juice, mm-hmm. uh, and some smashed anchovies and garlic and olive oil. And it's this lemony, peppery uh, – herby green sauce and it just kind of drapes all over the the cabbage. I love that you say bring back to life because you do the hard sear but then you roast for 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. So it's really softening as you say, but you're bringing it back to life like Frankenstein. (laughs) That's so smart. Love that. Like like what other herbs do you love to cook with? Like what are some big, what's in your big herb? I'd say I always have at least three or four. I really do. Uh, Parsley is essential, cilantro, uh, mint, 
Uh, those are definitely yeah. the three I use the most. Great um, herbs, always, and they're and they're available, and you should have them in your, in your in your in your crisper, you know, in your fridge. One more dish, and then we can get a little bit more into kind of uh, your point of view in desserts because you have one. <laughs> um, but pomegranate chicken, definitely like a BA staple. I feel like there was like BA like every issue there was a pomegranate chicken. Dud, everyone loves chicken, pomegranate molasses, but then you add lime juice to it, and it has, like, a lot of lime to it. Yes. So I want to hear about this because it feels like that might be the one, like, twist that you are providing this pomegranate chicken recipe. So it's based off an Iranian dish called fesenjun, which is incredibly delicious and not the most appetizing mm. looking. It's um, made with walnuts, pomegranate molasses, um, and... However many years ago, hundreds if not thousands, it used to be made um, with peacock, and then it ended up being turkey, and then My it ended goodness, up being duck. Peacock. Yeah, and then wow. it, now you typically just see it with chicken um, in Iran. So I want to do a kind of a brazy chicken dish, but uh, fesenjun is almost a touch sweet, and I wanted this to be a little bit more sour. Mm -hmm. So I added the lime juice. And pomegranate molasses, it does have a tang to it, but as it cooks, the sugars concentrate, so it gets a little bit it's sweet. It's pretty sweet. It can be cloying yeah. at times if you overuse it. Yes. Yeah. So the lime juice, I definitely use a, a generous amount, yeah. and uh, it ends up becoming this very soft, shreddy, uh, chicken dish that um, I love. I can't wait to, to make that one as well. So let's talk about desserts because you have a point of view and it's pretty much your smallest chapter is your dessert chapter. Yeah. I mean, I just have to ask you about this. Was this clearly an intentional choice? Yeah, it was very intentional. You know, I think um, there were plenty of desserts that uh, I tried out that didn't make the book. Wow. Um, there was one that maybe I should have, but I'll save <laughs> it for, for another time. You know, I think I took on this role and I, and I do write a little bit about it, uh, or I write a lot about it in the book, yeah. but um, I took on this role, I think, at BA, at Tasting Table, or even in restaurants where I was very much, you know, a savory cook, and uh, I was able to do a lot of different things, but with desserts, I kind of just avoided, and I think it was a combination of a few things, probably fear, um, and just worried I wasn't going to do it right, and I kind of avoided it, but... Uh, I really love desserts, and I just have yeah. to kind of set the time, and I really know what kind of desserts I do love, which are fruit-based desserts, yeah. which is why um, all the desserts in uh, in that chapter are, are fruit-based. Um, so I want it to be something that I continue to work on, and I kind of, well, I won't give it away, but I definitely want it to... To keep exercising that uh, that area, it's great. And you have a tribute to Miriam Barros's uh, plum tart yes. in the book. So, but it's a play on another dish as well, right? It's kind of a hybrid. Yes, it's a riff off of plum tart, her plum tart, and um, the almond cake from Lindsay Shear. That's it, right? And the two, it's like this like buttery, nutty cake, but then you get the tanginess from the plums. Um, it's a pistachio cake um, with uh, with plums. So I have to ask, like, you're you're no longer at BA. Um, the book is coming out. What's 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 on the horizon for you? Because I know like media is important. You've worked for like many years in media. <laughs> yeah. Do you want to work at another magazine, or are you? Uh, what, what's your what's in your horizon? Oh my god, I should get my resume. I should update that. <laughs> um, I think you'll do just fine. No, I think um, I think for me, what feels right is obviously I want to get this book out to the yeah. world. I want people to fall in love with with the recipes and hopefully the stories. And uh, I really hope it resonates with people. And I I do plan on on doing a book tour and. 
I think after the madness, uh, I want to keep obviously developing recipes. I think that'll like kickstart and I'll definitely be doing more recipes and writing um, maybe at another publication, freelance, maybe <laughs> on my own. We'll see. I can't give away quite. Yeah, quite maybe, a, maybe a sub stacky <laughs> kind of juncture, sub, sub sticky, yeah. sub stacky. Um, we ask all the guests on the Taste Podcast, if you could work on a cookbook without the burden of deadline, time, or money, meaning you don't really have a budget to worry about, what would that book be? It's a toss-up between two, but I'm going to go with the first one that I'm thinking of. And that is, I really, and I know I will one day do this. I hope to anyways. I would love to do a a vegetable cookbook. I think it's so natural to, it's it's it just what I'm drawn to. It's what I would cook the most. Um, it feels, I want to be able to kind of go deep into that and talk about the, the varieties um, I feel like so many of the cookbooks that I love are vegetable-based cookbooks. But at the same time, I also know that I feel like I, I would want to do an Iranian cookbook mm-hmm. in the future. Years and years and years. Yeah, and after many <laughs> not Plenty of time to do that. So what's the vegetable that is most slept on right now? Um, oof, well, I think – I if you asked me two years ago, I would have said cabbage. But I think cabbage is just yeah. like everybody's cooking it. Um, I would say people need to – Really fall in love, and this is people are probably going to roll their eyes when they hear this. Um, with beets, I mean, I'm I, I could say cardoons, but no one's going to find cardoons. But beets, I think like people should be cooking beets a lot more because they're so delicious. And when they're not overcooked, and when they're not overcooked, when they're like nice and crunchy, yes, always roast them, don't boil them, please. Always roast them. Thank you for saying that, Andy Baragani. Thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Thank you so much, Matt. The Taste Podcast is hosted by Matt Rodbard and me, Anna Heasel. The show is produced by Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Our theme music is by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks for listening.